Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. August 30th, 2018, episode 141. Why? Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England. Hi. Summer activities and EAS that bracketed two weekends have kept me away from producing the show. And now I'm back behind the microphone and as happy as can be. I'll tell you, there's times when I miss it. I miss getting in and talking about bees. I consider this show very similar to getting to talk to friends. And when I don't get to talk to you guys, I feel a little lonely. <laughs> no. I don't mean that in a strange and goofy way. People think I'm psychotic, but really, I, I do enjoy um, doing this. Anyway, titled this episode, Why? Because while away at EAS and having spent some time with Bob Kloss on the journey, we discussed our learning styles and landed that many Kevin moments are really my unrelenting need to know why. Bob and I discussed how we learn. Bob is a fact-and-figure guy. He retains things like no one I've ever known. The oddest things you could ask him three years later and he'll have it right like that. I, on the other hand, am wired differently. I have to know how it works and, more importantly, why it works. We were joking that I'm that little kid four years old who said, Why? Well, because. But why? Yeah, that was me. I don't know, I have to ask my twin if that was true. I draw correlations between this topic and another topic, cause and effect, and other aspects, which help me grasp, retain, and rationalize what I know. It might be one of the reasons why I tend to use analogies and tell things in a linear story kind of form. It's my brain's grasp on how things are connected. I find that what drives me more than a common person is I want to know a topic. And unlike others who take things at face value, I have to satisfy my understanding to a level that leaves me with an understanding of why. So I suppose this is a little too much inside baseball. And as I like to say about what makes things tick around here, and why, no pun intended, I tend to dig in more on things that I cover around these parts. So to specifically bridge this notion of why, let's talk about what's going to go on in this episode. The first topic is about the mode of action for hops beta acid, or the main ingredient of HopGuard 2. Why does it work? What exactly happens with the bees? The funny thing is, is Bob was content in our studying to say, yep, this is a mite treatment. I wanted to know how it worked. (laughs) Why? And I went on a quest. I think you'll find the outcome of the first topic interesting. It ended with an interesting twist. Topic number two, saving the bees from the inside out, feeding their way to health. Topic number three, drone on, how drones are being employed to help honeybees. 
Topic number four, Grafting Advice from Russ. And then for our round tables, Queens, a love letter from yours truly, a honey recipe from a local restaurant, what, huh, what did you say? The greater wax moth will never utter those words. Round table four, an unusual use for honey. And last but not least, catching up on some listener mail. And we'll close the show out with closing comments about EAS and what's in store for the next go around. Wow, packed show and there's no time to waste. So, to the local hive report. Local hive report. Since we last connected, there's been a mixed level of activities. Most of the hives are in a post-harvest state waiting for the fall nectar flow to kick in. They all have Apivar treatments on them, per the warranted mite thresholds that were encountered in July, and the full 56-day window will land next week, September 5th. That works out with my schedule, and the weekend after the 5th, I plan to prep my boxes for fall and work on ensuring they're well-fed and have healthy bees going into the fall. September and October provide the window for us in New Jersey to get our bees in winter shape. I'm going to talk of the activities that took place over the last couple weeks and focus on the gateway hive and hive number 12, which had the infamously nasty queen. The Gateway Hive has had quite a journey this year. It started out strong in the spring, swarmed, and then the after-swarm state of the hive suffered a setback with a bout of European fowl brood. I described that condition last time we visited and contemplated my options about how that hive was going to recover or not. I should share that what I said about abandoning the hive by shaking the bees out in the yard went by the wayside after I had a conversation with Bob Kloss about the hive. We were just talking about the experience, and he said, "Mm, you might really want to forego that. And we landed on a position that it might not be a good game plan to shake the bees out and have them take anything that they might have been exposed to to the other hives. Sage wisdom there. So just prior to leaving for the Eastern Apiculture Conference, I peeked in on the hive with a curiosity to discover what state it was in, and in an agile manner, make a decision of its fate. I really expected it would be on the precipice of collapse, but the hive continues to surprise me. After checking that hive several times in late July for a queen with no success, it had eggs. I was shocked. It had larvae, and it had the beginning of some brood. I looked through that hive, with hardly any bees in it, on multiple occasions, and found nothing. So I really was anticipating that the hive was going to be dead, and that I would be closing it off so no bees could get into it, until I had time to clean it up after coming back from EAS. So it had recovered. It was at the stages of rebuilding itself, but still I did not find a queen prior to EAS. I just saw evidence of one. When returning home from EAS, it was pretty much the same state, meaning population-wise, and I rather had hoped that maybe it would grow in a week's time, 
and the brood would expand. But what came evident is the hive is constrained. It's going to really struggle to build. So let me explain that. The queen can only lay eggs that the colony can protect. In other words, keep warm and care for. With such a small number of bees, the hive can't protect the brood. And the queen, grasping that, either lays more eggs and they cannibalize what can't be protected. And then she realizes she should not go on a laying spree anytime soon. So they're so low on population that they can't forage and they have limited food and supplies to feed the high population in new broods. So it's a chicken and egg kind of situation. When you're faced with correcting these situations, you can let them muddle along or you can give them a workforce infusion. So I walked down the lane, pulled two frames from one of my nukes that was absolutely booming and planned an intervention. So as I said, the hive had a low population, so low in fact that the unprotected areas of the hive, meaning the frames away from where the queen had laid, were experiencing a wax moth incursion. So I made a plan not only to supplement them, but compact the colony, and I moved them from a 10-frame Langstroth deep to a 5-frame nuke and then bolstered him with the frames that I said I collected a moment ago. The sidebar on that activity of the infusion is it didn't go so well. And normally that's not the case. It should be a no-brainer. I've transferred frames of resources between hives on so many occasions. And personally, I've never had a problem with this concept. If you take a frame of bees that are brood and nurse bees, you should be able to transfer them no problem into any other hive. And I was very explicit when I pulled the bees out to make sure I didn't have a queen and that I was working with nurse bees. With the exception of one experience that I know of where a beekeeper tried to mix carniolian bees and Italian bees in a hive for demonstration at the fair that I've talked about on an episode long ago, it ensued in a complete and utter riot of bees killing each other on the floor in front of the aghast people. <laughs> if you remember that story, if you're a long-time listener. I've never had a problem with this. It's always gone off without a hitch. In this case, not so much. I did it at dusk so that there weren't a lot of foragers out and about and causing a problem when I opened the hive. I did not have the hive open but for a few seconds and I smoked them prodigiously. I mean, I smoked them, and then I smoked them, and then I smoked them. The only other thing that I could have done maybe to help the situation was to spray them down with some sugar water so that they would be busy grooming, but I didn't anticipate any problems and didn't have any sugar water prepared. And you know, there was a time when I was putting that in my kit and I never found that I used it, so I stopped that practice and in this case, it might have helped. So what did I see? There was a heck of a tussle at the entrance. I sat in a chair at the entrance with my smoker, just periodically smoking what was going on at the hive and dreading all the fights and dead bees that were dropping from the bottom board. 
I knew that this hive was going to take a hit, and they had a small population to begin with, and I'm sitting there for about the 20, 30 minutes smoking the hive thinking, what did I gain if half the bees are going to die? So fear not, went back the next day, there was some damage. Actually, it was later in the week, I let them settle in some. There was no evidence of a pile of dead bees at the entrance. And when I opened the hive, everybody was humming along. And so for now, they're on their way to recovery. And hopefully, after I feed them this fall, they'll get the oncoming nectar flow as the goldenrod starts to pop. And they can build the population they need to get to an overwinter state. So that's the story of the Gateway Hive. Now the Gateway Box itself is in the garage along with its other mates that came out of that. And this gives me pause to repaint them and put them back out. And if all goes well, this nuke will rise again back in the Gateway Hive in the spring. So let's turn our attention to Hive number 12, the one with the bad disposition in need of a new queen. I plan to get the queen replaced on the Saturday prior to going to EAS but unfortunately overtaken by events and it didn't happen. That's actually a good thing because it turned out that I was able to work out a deal to obtain a queen from a New Jersey breeder and it so happened that Bob Kloss after we got back from EAS was going to meet with him as soon as we returned, so Tuesday night, Bob was in my driveway with a queen in hand. As anticipated, it did not go off uneventful. Bob, when he stopped by, was going somewhere that night, and he was early to leave to go there, so he hung out with me and said he would go in. I invited him to join me, with one caveat. <laughs> They're going to be nasty. He had a bee suit. He had some gloves, but he was wearing shorts. All I have to say is, stinging occurred. And, yep, we'll leave it at that. The hive configuration had one deep on the bottom board, a queen excluder, and two medium boxes on the stack. The excluder was there in anticipation of replacing the queen because there were so many bees in this box that finding the queen would have been impossible. So I was hedging my bets by cutting the hive in half. We made a decision to look for the queen in the lower brood chamber. So we took the top two mediums off, expecting the queen to be below, and we set those boxes aside and started to dig into the frames of the bottom box. Now is the time to share that the hive did not disappoint us in reminding why we were looking to replace the queen. Upon approaching the hive, they were defensive. Upon opening the hive, they were in our faces. And getting into the hive, they were simply in onslaught mode. At one point I had turned to Bop and I had warned him ahead of time that it was going to be very like the Africa experience and the way that the bees were up in at you and that's exactly what we saw. To make a long story short, there was no queen in that hive. We paramount to emptying the hive and inspected every single frame and could not find a queen. We didn't find any eggs, brood, and other things that indicated there was even a queen in there, but there was no 
desire on my part to sacrifice the queen that Bob had just driven in. And we were going to be extremely diligent in checking that hive. We made three passes through every box and no queen. And the final litmus test was to take the cage with the queen in it that we were going to put in and expose it to the bees. We didn't do this until we had no recourse. We had at one point in the bottom box pulled every frame out and put them aside and looked at all the bees covering the woodenware, the inside of the box, looking for the queen with a flashlight and didn't find her. That's how much detail. So what we ended up doing is taking the queen cage and dragging it through a pile of bees. Now the general test here is if the queen is in the hive and her scent and her pheromone are there, they'll reject the new queen and they'll attempt to kill her as a foreign invader. And what you'll find is they'll cling to the cage where the queen is and they'll bite and they'll try to get to her. They'll sting attendants if there are any. And we didn't see any evidence of that. In fact, the bees loved her. They were on the cage. When you take your finger and you swipe them through the bees sitting on the cage, they wipe right off. They're not clamped in and, and hooked onto the cage, which means they're trying to get to that queen. And as soon as you took your finger away, they went right back in. New bees came in, and they were really looking like a queen's court slash trying to uh, get to her and, and help feed and nurture her. There's some additional things to share about this, but the, I said short story, so I guess I didn't get that right. <laughs> we put the hive all back together and we put the queen in between the frames and left her to be released. It was a queen cage with candy so that they could take a couple days, eat through the candy and release the queen on their own. There were far less aggressive bees when I went back and checked the hive a number of days later. The frames were in that customary pattern where the resources were stored in the brood chamber. Meaning, when you pull the frame out and you look, there's honey up in the corner, there's a pollen ring, and there's a big open sphere in the center of the frame where they anticipate the queen is going to lay. That's what I found when I went back in it a week later. So I know they have a queen because they wouldn't set it up that way, and everybody was calm and happy. So that's good news. I didn't find the queen, but I also didn't want to disturb a newly put together colony and have a problem there. So I got in, saw what I saw, know that there's evidence that there's probably a queen in there and closed it up. So far less aggressive is another sign they have a queen and they're just getting to business. The other observation that the colony of bees were on the wing during our examination. Now, we really had the hive ripped apart. I mean, there were frames everywhere and all the bees were up. They were not only after us, but they were spreading across all the hives. And they seemed really confused because we had their hive broken apart and they were trying to enter all the other hives. And at one point, turned to Bob and said, we should put this thing all back together so that these bees don't go kill all the other hives that are there. That would be really bad. In retrospect, I might have done that a little bit differently, but I'm not sure how much I would have changed or what, 
I'll have to think through that as to how much we pulled that hive apart. Really didn't want to take the queen cage and try that trick first because I'm nervous that they would have killed the queen and that would have been really, really bad way to get started. So upon checking the hive, it's good and the rest of the yard is good. Look like business as usual. Nothing to see here, citizens. My next action in my yards is to go through the hives on the weekend of September 8th. That date is important to me because it's 56 days the Apivar treatment has been in and it's time to get it out of the hive. And I could take a mite sample, make sure my mite thresholds are where they're supposed to be after treatment. And if I am so inclined, I might put a honey box or two on depending on what the nectar flow looks like for fall. I think what I'm thinking about actually is more a different routine. I think I want to get the hives down to two boxes in winter form and feed them and see if I could drive the queen down into the lower box and have them have a natural setup or possibly even manipulate the hives so that the queen is down in the center of the lower box and I could feed them and drive them down. That's what I've been thinking about um, in preparation. Now, one of the things I know that I've done is I swapped all the bottom boards out and put that custom bottom board combo that I put together, which is a solid bottom board topped by a screen bottom board with the back open that I could put oxalic in. And my thought is, in November time frame, sometime between the 15th and Thanksgiving, I'm going to check the hives, and if need be, I might give them an oxalic acid vaporization because by that time they should be knocking down on the brood in the cells, and I could get the phoretic varroa mite riding around on the bees. So local hive report, hey, they're hanging out in the yard. Everything looks good. I have some feeding to do to build up some of these hives, but for the most part, things are in pretty good shape this year. Yeah. So I'll say this for the first time this episode. If you have any comments, questions, things you want to talk about, show me, share with me, you can reach me, Kevin at bkcorner.org via email. I do my best to answer and look at all the emails that come through. And I'm going to say this 10 times probably throughout. Almost everything we talk about, if there's a reference, there's show notes. You can go to our websites and look at all the shows and get links to the things that I talk at www.bkcorner.org. All right, let's go ahead and move to topic number one. Topic number one, the title is Hops Beta Acid. I spent some time documenting the mode of action for the products we use in our war against Varroamite. It's a difficult exercise at best. There's a product on the marketplace called Checkmite Plus. Checkmite Plus is the trade name for Kumafos, which is a product we know as past its prime for effectiveness in the battle against mites. Still, there was a time when it was effective, so how did it work? For that, we have to consider its mechanism of action, or there's a mode of action. Mechanism of action is a term we use at work for how a drug works. Mode of action. 
It's a sodium channel modulator, according to my research. The description of how it impacts the mite is described in this way. Quote, Intoxication through contact leads to hyperexcitation and nerve-blocking-induced tremors, followed by paralysis and eventually death. End quote. Excitation? I don't know, it looks like the word excite. Maybe I pronounced it wrong, I'm not sure, but that's what I'm assuming it means. Hyper-excitement, if I want to put it that way. So if I could guess at a layman's description of that, it's a bit like an overload of caffeine. That's not literally true, and a better analogy might be too much energy sent down a wire and the nervous system of the mite suffers an overload. What I know about um, something like nicotine, for example, is the human brain has the ability to process that, but insects have no such faculty, and they go into nervous spasms, so to speak. Terrible description for me, but that's generally the premise is they're not equipped to handle it. That's the takeaway. So, okay, check my plus. As I trudged through it, I came upon an interesting discovery, though. The next product I tried to research was HopGuard 2. The mode of action? Let me see. Unknown. Yeah, unknown. Don't you find that particular? It's a product we can use, put in our hives, and if you ask someone to describe the mode of action, they don't know. I guess it's not uncommon, and one could look at another reference. Acetaminophen. Excedrin, the brand of headache medicine, has an active ingredient of acetaminophen. Excedrin as a product has been out for half a century. Circa 1960, if Wikipedia has it right. In fact, the company I work for, Bristol Myers Squibb, developed and used and used to manufacture this product until 2005 when we sold it to Novartis. So the MOA, mode of action of a product that has been on the marketplace for 50 years is, well, um, it is, I, I can't tell. You? Can you tell? Why? It turns out <laughs> the exact mechanism of analgesia is unknown. Now, scientists know that acetaminophen acts primarily in the CNS, central nervous system, and increases the pain threshold by inhibiting cyclooxygenase. Probably said that one wrong, too, but go with the flow. This is an enzyme involved in prostaglandin, PG, synthesis, whatever that means. But the truth is, even with something like acetaminophen, we sometimes don't know how it works. We just simply know it does. Makes me think about a guy with a big mask with, you know, grass skirt in the woods <laughs> telling you to take this. And you're thinking voodoo, you know. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, I was off in my own place there for a moment. <laughs> so let's turn back to the impact of the active ingredient of HopGuard 2, potassium salts of hops beta acid. The mode of action is unknown. 
I did find some speculation. I'm going to read it to you. Quote, the mode of action for hops beta acid is undefined at this time. However, it may cause death by asphyxiation through penetration of the pest's thin exoskeleton, end quote. But again, it appears unknown. So one has to ask oneself, how exactly does something that we have no idea how it works make it into the marketplace? To take a run at that, I'll turn to the Federal Register, Volume 80, Issue 203, where the government assessed a request for exemption from the requirement of tolerance for potassium of hops beta acids. In this document, which I'll have a link to in the show notes, the breakdown of the dangers of this product and the step-by-step way in which they evaluated the product that has apparently been in the marketplace in various forms for a long time and has not, and this is important, resulted in any harm. How might you ask? It cites, for example, in that paper, that quote, There is a long history of safe use of HPAs via the oral and dietary exposure to humans from its use as a preservative on meats. Estimated range, 4.4 milligrams, kilograms of cooked meat to 5.5 milligrams, kilograms of frankfurter and its presence in the beer brewing process, end quote. It talks about the lack of concern for harm to humans, harm to water, harm to occupational exposures, and in a nutshell, they've deemed this stuff is simply not a concern if handled well. So the fact of the matter is this stuff is used as a preservative in meats and in a greater extent in hot dogs or frankfurters as they put it. And it's also in the beer brewing process somehow. In one passage it expressly talks about its use in beehives and this is where it's interesting for us. Quote, Non-occupational exposure to potassium salts of hops beta acids is not expected because potassium salts of hops beta acid is formulated into a viscous liquid and coated on fiber strips which are placed inside the beehive. There are no residential proposed uses. However, minimal to no risk is expected for the general population, including infants and children, due to the minimal toxicity of this chemical as demonstrated in the data submitted and evaluated by the agency, as fully explained in the document entitled, quote, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, Considerations for Potassium Salts of Hops Beta Acids, July 15, 2015, available in the docket for this action, end quote. They go on further to give it a green light with their conclusion, quote, Based on its assessment of potassium salts of hops beta acid, EPA concludes that there is reasonable certainty that no harm will result to the general population or to infants and children from the aggregate exposure to potassium salts of hops beta acids. 
EPA is therefore establishing an exemption from the requirement of a tolerance for residues of potassium salts of hops beta acids for the control of varroa mites in or on honey and honeycomb in accordance with label directions and good agricultural practices, end quote. So I ask you, do you find this interesting? I was kind of surprised. On one hand, I'm a little nervous. On another hand, I'm happy that the EPA can take other avenues to perform what equates to a risk exercise with varying sources of input and decide. Sometimes. I of course recognize that sometimes we beekeepers are not overly smitten with the reviews that they do, but that's not the point of the discussion here. It is that the mode of action notwithstanding, we have HopGuard 2 as an option, with a little idiosyncrasy that most of us were probably blissfully unaware of the fact that they don't really know how it works. I find that a surprise and a fascination and I learned something new about our world that I would not have anticipated. Topic number two, saving the bees from the inside out. On our family vacation in Seattle earlier this summer, I spent some time looking for interesting things to do related to beekeeping in the area. I actually struck out finding an activity like last year, but did stumble upon some work being done In the Washington area, University of Washington has a specific point that piqued my interest. The topic is on the discovery roadmap for a potential way to, uh, I'll say my words, detoxify honeybees by having them ingest a substance that will be like a magnet and absorb bad actors in the bee and through the digestion process, have it removed from the bee. Neat. Washington State University researchers developed a material that, in their words, quote, act as a magnetic micro-sponge that absorbs ingested toxic residues, end quote. The substance they are experimenting with comes in a powder form and has pollen-sized particles that's mixed with sugar solution fed to bees. Once consumed by the bee, it's designed to absorb pesticide toxins from the hemolymph. Hemolymph, for those that don't know the term, is the equivalent of blood. Bees don't have a circulatory system like us, with a heart like us and veins and all that. They have an open circulatory system. They're basically a fluid sac in an exoskeleton. And the fluid floating around in there, instead of being called blood, is called hemolymph. So they absorb this pesticide toxin with this product from the hemolymph, and then they pass it out of the bee like, well, any other non-used food. So in early stages of development, the researchers are conducting experiments to measure what is being absorbed and the effectiveness of how much of it is being absorbed. In their journey, they pass the first fundamental hurdles, the one where they literally feed the product to the bee and assure that it did indeed attract and absorb pesticide toxins, the microparticles, out of the hemolyph. And, of course, they monitored the health of the bees after the particles were excreted in the feces, and so far the bees seemed to be unharmed. 
According to the article I read, the next focus is about the effectiveness. How well can they do this over a long period of time? They have to ensure, with more testing, that the product does not cause harm by sucking out necessary and beneficial materials, but continues to remove only the unwanted particles or constituents. The report that I read indicates that the material, quote, only works on pesticide residues and only at a certain pH level and temperature, end quote. I guess the takeaway from that statement is that it's not anticipated to impact or absorb beneficial things like amino acids or any of the other things that the bee eats. So I guess time will tell how successful they are. And the hope is that they might have a product, something to put into the hands of beekeepers and in the marketplace in the next two years if everything goes on a happy path. So I'm fascinated by this. I'm hoping we'll hear more positive things in the future and that we'll learn how exactly this thing targets one thing and not another. And for the link to the source material I spoke of, see our show notes for this episode, episode 141. Topic number three, Drone On. That's the title of this one. My twin brother Keith has a drone, and well, he loves the thing with all his heart. The new model of his drone is out, and he has drone envy and is trying to convince his other half that it would be a good investment. I might have an idea for him. There's a company out there that's doing something that is purported to be helping the bees in a different manner, so to speak. When we consider almonds, and specifically almond pollination, more pollination is better. The more bees that are available per tree, the more fruit the tree can make. That means more nuts and higher profits for everyone. Some almond growers will go with the customary two hives per acre allotment, but others know that if you put even more bees on that single acre, you could potentially make a profit because, well, more bees means eking out more pollination, and if they can get enough additional fruit from that extra hive to compensate for the cost of the hive, that means more profit to them. The problem with this approach in the beekeeping industry is bees are hard to come by. And sometimes the demand outweighs the supplies of the bees and we're struggling to have enough bees to bring the almonds as it is. Enter the drop copter. This is a modernized method of pollinating through brute force. Drop copter is a new technology that sprinkles the field with pollen. Well, actually, it more like bombs the trees with pollen as it blindly dusts the entire area and relies on this blanketing approach. Uh, bees are not in jeopardy of being replaced by the drop copter, not yet at least. They're not going to be put out of work as this is not a standalone solution to pollinating trees. However, it is stated that when coupled with bee pollination, there have been reports of trees yielding up to 25 to 60% more fruit, according to their website. 
Now, not everything goes according to plan with bee pollination of almonds. This is known. Rain, wind, fog, pesticide spraying, and other things could lead to trees not being pollinated by the bees. With the drones, it turns out, well, they have their own picadillos. Similar challenges cause issues for the drone technology. Humidity, the dust falling right, rain, wind. But it shows promise, and almond growers are always looking for some form of advances in yields for very little cost, and this seems to fit the bill. The cool thing about this is the technology is not restricted to almonds. It works for other orchard crops like apples, cherries, pears, and other fruits. It seems to me a pretty cool application of technology, and while it's a little odd to think of things to take work away from the bees as a good thing, there is a line of thinking that taking pressure off bees needed for pollination demands especially of almonds, which are perilous in some ways, is a good thing. So on that, we'll say this is cool. So Keith, let's talk. Might have an angle for you to explore. Aerial Pollination for Agriculture. Dropcopter.com is the website if you want to know more. Topic number four, grafting tips. In episode 134, I talked about grafting adventures with Bob Kloss in the episode Bob's Bee Emporium. At the time, we were going back and forth about activities that we were working on. And a listener sent me an email, and we followed it. And I went back afterwards and wrote it up with anticipation back in the day of putting it out. And again, overtaken by events. And now I'm finally getting to it. But you know what? It was so cool in the moment that I I think it's neat to share now. So how do we make out with our grafting? I don't know that I ever said that. The general premise is it turned out okay. I'm an eternal optimist, you might have guessed. From a practice standpoint, but the fact of the matter is we didn't get any queens out of it. You've heard me talking about queens all summer if you've been listening. That's how it goes. We had a turn of events a misstep that resulted in the outcome, we don't have any queens. You know when you take on doing grafting and queen rearing and using the Nyko cage and other things like that, that there's a number of things that can go wrong, and you're optimistic that you're going to have a good outcome right out of the bat, but you also know deep down that you could have catastrophic failure, and, well, part of what you resign to is when you start out, you want to learn. And then from that, it almost takes two or three tries for people to get a rhythm and get successful about it, and we fell into that boat. I may or may not ever take on grafting again, I'm not sure. I did it for the fact that I wanted to have the experience, especially for the Master Beekeeper test. And now I know how to do it, and if in the future I get to do it again, I think maybe the second or third try will get it right and do it well and you know Bob and I have talked about doing it again next year and making the course corrections what's cool is I could share with you what I learned at least some of it I know we did right and then dig in to find out what went wrong and on that line others wrote me in to share what they know from hearing our conversation so such is the case from a recent email from a listener named Russ 
Rust Grafted Queens this year, and I'm sh- sure that, uh, in fact, I already have shared it with Bob Kloss, what he said at EAS, actually, as I think back on it. So I'm going to share what Russ had to say, and he did it in the great spirit of beekeepers going together, which I always talk about, and this is paying it forward, in a way, as Russ shared that he too picked this up through insights of another. So here's what he said. I'm going to kind of read some excerpts from his email. Kevin, let me see if I can get you, get this out to you so you're grafting again tomorrow so you can try them out. So that gives you the time frame. He wrote in immediately after hearing what we were doing it. Most of these you may know, meaning the tips he's going to pass on. And they helped me this year as I just started grafting. None of these are mine, all passed to me by a master beekeeper at our club. The first shared recommendation was this. Buy six to eight of the Chinese grafting tools. Also then buy a few from the different vendors as they all function slightly differently. He told me the cheap one dollar tool ended up being his favorite. I'm assuming he means the master beekeeper. There are also German tools that are preferred for other club members. With the six to eight Chinese tools, take one, file it down, and get the plastic tongue to the shape that you want it to be. Use an older emery board for this or a sharpening stone. Take the first one, file it down a lot, and then take another one in slightly less, and so on. And then try each one as you're grafting to see which one works best for you. The second tip is about grafting proper. When grafting, put the tool straight down the cell wall to grab all the royal jelly and larva. Then when you lay the larva in the plastic cell cup, place it down into the cell to the tongue is sitting bent on the bottom of the cell. This makes sure the larva does not get flipped over and lays flat. If the larva is flipped over, it will drown. So I guess I should take a moment and explain this. Because I don't know that everybody knows what grafting is. But grafting is when you use a tool in the two description I gave so far. It looks a little bit like a ballpoint pen. And I want to say you scoop, but that's not technically correct. You collect a day-old larva, less than 24 hours is the proper age, and you move it from a honeycomb to a cup, which you then put in a cell builder and entice the bees to make queens. So one of the things that happens frequently is when you place the larva in the cup and you don't do it well, and it's so teeny tiny like a micro grain of rice, You could flip it over and you drown the larva and you're none the wiser. So when I said the novice doing this often doesn't have success, it's these finesse things that you don't know about until somebody, when you tell them you didn't have success, writes you in and tells you these things. (laughs) So hence the reason he paid it forward and I'm paying it forward. So now that I know that, I, I know I'm positive. I did this wrong and Bob will probably say the same thing. I did not follow that process, and I'm clear that I probably screwed it up. I'm I'm guessing that this little factoid will come back in the future and make me more successful, I hope. 
So using this technique, the one just described, also make sure that the plunger rides down the tongue and comes in contact with the tongue for the whole path and scrapes off all the royal jelly. In between grafting, place the tool in your mouth to keep it moist. So when you go into the honeycomb and you take the larva out, you're trying to get the pool of royal jelly that the larva is in. And if you don't do this technique, you're not going to scrape all the royal jelly off. Sometimes people mass provision royal jelly and then they put the larva in the cell cup. But if you have a good donor frame, then you don't have to do that. The third bit of advice was, Russ says you need glasses at least 10x no matter how good your eyes are. And I agree, you can't do this with plain eyesight. He uses jeweler glasses and says they work, but you have to be close to the cells. He searches around for the youngest larva and then he flips up the glasses and pulls them away so he can see what he's actually doing to graft. He's hoping to find something else that works with the glasses that he wears all the time. And I too wear glasses, so I didn't do well with the glasses or the magnifying things. I ended up using a magnifying glass and the thing with that is with your hand you can move it up and down to get the right focus and see what the tool is doing. I found with the glasses that mount on your head, you ended up moving your head back and forth. Yeah, the sound changes because I'm literally doing this, bobbing and weaving here in front of the microphone, to get that right focus. And you don't tend to stand still. You want to move around, and I found that really funny, right? So anyway, he shared that if you don't use magnification, well, you'll be amazed on how small the four-day larvae actually are. Basically, if you could see them, which is what you tend to do, if you're not using magnification, they're too old. You really need to go to the day old. Hmm. Wait a second. Kevin moment. I probably confuse people going back and forth with the four, three, two, one thing. Um, eggs are three days, and then it turns to a larva. You you do not want to pick an egg out of the cell when you're grafting. You want to pick a larva. When the egg is done three days, and it's on its first full day of being larva stage, that's the ideal. If you add three egg days and one larva day, that's four day. That's what he was referring to there in that statement. But you really want a one day, less than 24 hour stage larva. That's what you're looking for for best results. All right, good. Hopefully I cleared that up. Hmm, where was I? Then there was the final insight on how to prep a colony and subsequently handle the grafts. I'll cut to the chase on this and tell you what I think happened that we failed. One of the things you have to do with your queens once they're grafted is handle them, handle them well. And somewhere along the line, we couldn't figure out what we did wrong, but we think we might have jarred them too much in moving them around after they were kept. That's the best we can come up with. We don't know it for true. But next time, we would be far more cautious in that aspect of it. And we'll go through it again and see what happens. 
I think I could speak on behalf of Bob. We wouldn't trade the experience for anything, yes. We would have liked to have had made some queens. But I'm positive we're going to do it again. It's one of the things, rite of passage, is to say that you grafted your own queens. It's a bucket list kind of thing. Now, I think a Nico system is in my future, and I think there's a long-term prospect of using that more readily than the grafting thing, because if you listen, you know, I just generally don't have any surplus of time, and this grafting thing seemed like a lot of work to me. So circling back, uh, Russ, thanks. Really appreciate that you took the time and are paying it forward. You shed some light on some missteps that probably got us into trouble and given us food for thought when we try again. And that's one of the best things about collaboration from beekeepers. You know, how long, why do you have to learn from scratch? And how long would it take to do that? And in the context of helping each other, it really shortcuts the process. So I spoke with Bob recently about round number two. And he did the NICO system only. And it was a work in progress, but I don't think that one panned out right either for reasons that I don't have to discuss here. Because <laughs> I just don't want to belabor the point. But um, we'll get it, I promise. Next year we'll be talking about the queens that we raised and happier for it. And Russ, you might have had something to do with that. So again, thanks for writing in, sharing. Time to go to the back of the book. Roundtable number one. Queens. Okay, hey, come on, come over here. Let's talk. This talk has been due for a little while. I see the comments. I know the disappointment. I do, I know. What am I talking about? Queens. You know, most people thank me, like what we do around here, appreciate the effort. But every once in a while, I see a little dissent. People don't agree with my practices. And I've done some crazy stuff over time. <laughs> I know I have. All for science. If you think this is how I keep bees, it's not really. I'm a pretty conventional, customary beekeeper on the surface. I talk about different things and think people think I'm cowboy up with everything that I do. But I experiment here and there. And I'm far less experimental than I was back in the beginning, but I've learned quite a bit. And one of the things that I repeatedly get is people do not agree with my opinion that queen genetics is important. And I'm here to clear the air. I'm here to clear the air. So here's the thing. Of course they're important. If you've listened long enough, you know. I've bought certain queens with different genetics to know. Do I believe it's the answer? It's not. And this is where a lot of people differ, but I'm going to explain myself. And then I'm going to let you in on something that I think is going to change that opinion. So, genetics are great. If you look at a Minnesota Hygienic, a Purdue ankle biter, even going back to the different hives that were created by Brother Adam for Buckfast Abbey. There are good queens, and it does make a difference. I think people mistake my 
opinion on that. What I don't agree with is that buying a good queen and putting it in one of your hives solves the bigger problem. And this is the point that I've always had contention with. Unless everybody is doing it, nobody's doing it. And the fact of the matter is the vast majority of of regular run-of-the-mill beekeepers are not buying special queens. They're told over and over again, but at the end of the day, they're either putting packages in that are coming out of the package mills or they're just getting queens wherever they can get it because they're desperate. And the other aspect of that is it's not really about the queens. It's really more about the drones. Now, if you could control the queen and the drone genetics in some way, then you could control the situation. But the problem is drone congregation areas are made up of your bees, your neighbor's bees, their neighbor's bees, and you have no idea what the stock is. So yes, you can put a good queen in your hive, and yes, it can make a difference for a while, but when she casts off and her daughters go out and mate, you're going to get diluted by whatever's out there in nature. So hopefully my clearing up of this topic in my belief that yes queens can be of high quality and do make a difference and the way that I think the right approach is is to do what Billy Davis had done which was foster a queen program in a specific region and get the genetics everywhere in that region and then you have you and your neighbors and their neighbors all working from genetic stock and that's how some of these guys who are having success I think actually make it happen so now let me not bury the lead about EAS I'm going to talk about EAS a little later in the show and what I'm going to do to report and recap what we saw down there but I'm going to go after one thing which is going to clear a lot of this up there was a revolution in my mind, something that was shared from a researcher that the viruses that the bees have are the impact, right? That's a prevailing theme that came out of this year's EAS conference. And if you think about how do bees get viruses, if you asked me that question before the conference, I would have told you they get them from varroa mite. The answer is not necessarily. Now, of course, right? Let me not make another mistake where people think I'm wrong of course they get them from varroa mite but what we learned is it's being transmitted vertically from queen to daughter and offspring through the eggs that the queen lays and the viruses are coming from the virus load inside the queen and what they did was test different queens coming from different places and found out that some are not as virus laden as others And that might make a huge difference in the ability of, yes, your single queen can make a big difference in the gene pool of your neighborhood and your offspring. That's a revelation. That's an important aspect. And I'll come back to that again when I talk about this topic in earnest and how the viruses are transmitted. But I think that changes my ideas about, yes, now it's important when you get your queens that you get a specific queen with that type of trait 
and I'll talk more about that when we talk about the EAS episode coming up. Thanks. Thanks for hearing me out on that. (laughs) I feel like a therapy session. But, you know, I had to say it because I think people really do misunderstand my ideas on this. And if you have different ideas, I'm open because part of the reason I know that people dislike my opinion on this is I asked for feedback and they gave it to me. And I've listened and now I'm sharing to you what I think. So there you go. Round table number two, I have a recipe for this episode. It's been a while since we brought one of those. Lambertville Station Honey Mustard Dressing. There's 18 billion honey mustard dressing recipes out there. I've tried a bunch of them. This one is truly outstanding. Before I tell you the recipe, I'll say that the Lambertville Station Restaurant is part of a complex that sits along the Delaware River on the corner of Bridge Street in the town of Lambertville, which isn't far from us. It's about eight miles north of where Washington crossed the Delaware at Washington's Crossing, New Jersey. They give this recipe, and I always thought it rather strange when a restaurant gives away one of their primary recipes, but I'm going to chalk it up to my own uh, rationale of why a restaurant would do this, which is they probably got sick of being asked what's in it and decided to cut bait, and it's a promotion for the restaurant. And in this case, it works because it's so good, you need to try it, and you should give credit to Lambertville Station where the credit is due. So the recipe has quite a large um, volume of ingredients. You're going to make a big batch. And I'm sure that it's proper to cut it in half and make a smaller batch for the home. So the software, as Alton Brown would say, meaning the ingredients are a half cup of mayonnaise. Hellman's, of course. Come on. The craft stuff is not mayonnaise. A quarter cup of Spanish onion. 2 tablespoons yellow mustard, 4 ounces of honey, which is why we're doing this, 2 tablespoons of cider vinegar, 1 tablespoon of fresh parsley chopped, quarter teaspoon of salt, and last but not least, 1 and a half ounces of vegetable oil. I would assume canola oil would be probably a good choice. 4 easy steps. First one, puree the onion and chop the parsley to prep. Then mix all of the ingredients except the oil and the parsley. After you have the ingredients mixed, whisk them together and incorporate oil in a steady stream until it's blended. And then when you're done, just sprinkle the parsley to finish. You can make it and eat it right away, or you should refrigerate it, and it tastes a little better cold. That's probably how people expect it anyway on their salads. I'm telling you, this is so good. It's definitely worth trying. To that end, at EAS, someone stopped me and said, we made that honey caramel that you gave out as a recipe one time. Stop me in the show, I guess it was about midweek. And then later, I saw them (laughs) win a silver prize for one of the best food products in the show at EAS. And the person, as he was going to accept his prize, tapped me on the shoulder (laughs) 
as he was going by my seat. So that's kind of funny. But if you've ever made that honey caramel, I don't know which episode it was, it's it's as good as this. I pick good recipes, otherwise I wouldn't pass them along. And um, Yeah, that just goes to show. All right, moving on. Roundtable number three, this is a really, really quick one. I titled this one, Did You Hear That? I spent a lot of time with Bob Kloss lately, studying for EAS Master Beekeeper and uh, spending the whole week together and other activities. He shared this little tidbit with me one day. He said, Kevin, do you know the world's most extreme hearing animal? It is. Drum roll. The greater wax moth. Researchers have discovered that the greater wax moth is capable of sensing sound frequencies of up to 300 kilohertz, the highest recorded frequency sensitivity of any animal in the natural world. So if you think you're going to sneak up on a greater wax moth, au contraire, you have another thing coming. Roundtable number four. This one's titled, Four. For this roundtable, I'm going to share a product of the hive that is obscure and likely one you've never considered. Pop quiz. What is round, dimpled, and soft in the middle? Not me. I'm guessing I didn't make this very hard, as if you associated dimples with a golf ball. And, of course, the title of the roundtable was four. Well, you win the prize. It turns out that in the evolution of the game of golf, there was a time when manufacturers were looking for the sweet spot for the internal materials in the science of a golf ball and utilized honey for its special properties. Uh, hold on there. Sweet spot in the center. You see what I did there? <laughs> I'm just checking if you're paying attention. The story goes that golf balls evolved to use many materials over the years. They probably started as stones or some sort of wood. And then in the quest for a better ball, early material science took over. The 1600s featured featheries. These were golf balls made primarily from goose feathers and some sort of leather outer cover. They were the standard balls until the mid-19th century. The balls were reasonably suited for golf, but it had one key drawback. It did not perform when it got wet. In the 1860s, a technology called gutties, who knows where they came up with these names, were developed out of some form of wood, and while they were more durable and resistant to moisture problems, they had difficulties in cold weather and still weren't optimal. Whatever the wood property was in cold and wet conditions made it degrade and it fell apart. The next phase of design featured a rubber wound core, which had great improvement in distance and durability, and at the same time introduced the concept that led to an outer cover, which you could put dimples on, and was the modern precursor of the ball we use today. This combination achieved greater distances, but tinkerers knew they could have a better mousetrap out there, and this revolution of the 
rubber core with the outer covering set off the quest to find the optimal internal material. There's a lore of the exploding golf ball, which may have a kernel of truth in it, but it's more of an urban legend. One of the experiments was there was an instance in 1898 where the B.F. Goodrich Company, yep, same one that make tires, manufactured golf balls using compressed air center that occasionally exploded and had problems with expansion in the heat, among other things. These apparently fell out of favor, as one would imagine. About 1910, they were looking for different things. Cork, metal, other substrates were tried, but liquid, liquid was going to be the answer. Rubber materials were great for all their attributes, but Spalding and other companies started to experiment with a liquid core ball. They were seeking a better dynamic than the static core, and liquids, if done right, provided a solid but mobile, meaning moving around core, that could provide advantages on the strike from a golf club. Early versions of the liquid-filled balls were made by Titleist, Spalding, and others, featured corn syrup for the viscousness and salt water blended, but eventually problems were discovered. They leaked liquid density that changed the behavior of the flight. The ingredients would spoil inside the golf ball and go bad. And other things challenged the material scientists. So they switched. They started experimenting with other things. Castor oil, mercury, wine, and to the point of this feature, honey. They decided honey was the product to use. In 1934, a revolution was announced. Honey is the secret ingredient. The L.A. Young Golf Company introduced the Walter Hagen Honey-Centered Golf Balls. Walter Hagen was a prominent golfer. He was the Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods of his day. The thing is, the viscosity of the honey solved the sloshing problem. It was not prone to leaking. The material provided the right density for weight. A golf ball must weigh 1.62 ounces or lengths. And in the materials, they want the, from what I understand, they want the weight at the center. So honey worked really well for that. Honey will never evaporate. And some purported that it resists the shock waves of impact, which turns into power in the strike, and a longer flying ball, which is what they were really looking for. It was, as they advertised, one honey of a ball. <laughs> so as one might surmise, eventually science came up with a better option, and today's golf balls are generally made of some form of synthetic rubber-coated with a dimpled material for the optimal game. And if you look up the construction of them, they come in two-layer, four-layer, one-piece, six-layer, all these different compounds that say one is better than the other. Still, it's kind of cool to think that the honey-filled ball reigns supreme for a period of time. And it really gives a unique twist to products of the hive. Check out our show notes for a link to an advertisement of the honey-filled ball. It's kind of neat, kitschy, retro. 
There's also a link there to a brief history of the golf ball and all the materials they used. I only scratched the surface in this one, if that interests you. Around table number five, I wanted to circle back on some listener emails. First one is a response to Paul and Karen Smith. Paul wrote in saying that uh, there was an option when you have a hive operating slowly to do a brood expansion by conducting what he called brood lifting. And I'm equating this to pyramiding up, which is something that I have talked about and done in the past. I know the practice of Paul from Walter Wright, who was a person in beekeeping circles on the East Coast here, who was a big advocate of that. If you go to Bee Source Forum, one of the pin forums is Walter Wright's work, and I've talked to Walter Wright and Charlie Ilsley, who's part of our pack of beekeepers, also was a huge advocate of that practice. For those that don't know what I'm talking about, when you have a hive that you want to expand up and improve, there's a number of techniques. One of them is, if the hive is bound up, meaning they have so many resources up and across the brood chamber, you can take another box, put it on top, and interchange frames from the full box that sits above the brood chamber to the new box that you put on top. And that will do a couple things. It creates a lane for the bees to go up and operate in. And it also draws the bees up into the bigger space. And it creates kind of a condo effect for them where they have more room like an addition in the hive. So Paul was kind enough to share how they do it in Australia, and I'm just going to, since he wrote it up, I'm going to relay it. He said, our winter is way less extreme than yours, and they do a single brood. That's what works for them. Um, here's what their year looks like. They exit winter with one over one with a queen excluder still in place. The winterizing they do is close down the entrance and vents a bit and insert a winter mat on top of the brood frames under the excluder. The purpose of that is to protect the brood area from cold breezes and it allows the queen to keep breeding all year long. So contrary to what a lot of people think, if you can keep a cluster closed off enough in a space and they have enough warmth, the queen will continue to operate inside the middle of that cluster. Once the day temperatures reach 22 degrees Celsius, we remove the winter mat and start rotating frames up. The pyramiding that I was just talking about. Usually frames 1, 2, and the outside surface frame of 3 is almost 100% honey exiting winter. And the tops of the other frames are also honey, so the queen is cramped in a small space in the middle. And the last thing you want when days get warm is the queen not to have a place to expand and lay, so you need to open the brood chamber up. And that's what he goes on to say. We need help to we need to help her quickly expand to full egg laying production. We will lift the outer honey frames to the honey super and sift two and three out now to be one and two and place a fresh frame in positions three and eight. Five to seven days later, we will quickly check the lifted frames for rogue queen cells and destroy those. By lifting a frame, there is likelihood that the queen pheromones are weaker 
and if there is a viable egg in the lifted frame, the bees may start emergency queen rearing. So we've talked about queen substance has to permeate the entire hive, and if you create such a big area that queen substance doesn't travel, the bees will act on a potential swarming impulse to build out queen cells, and he's nipping that in the bud. Three weeks, or 21 days after the first lift, they do the same lift process, but this time with extra step. If the frame is honey-capped brood, it still gets lifted, as the brood will emerge just as well in the honey super as in the brood super. We lift 1 and 10 again, but this time we shift 2 and 4 outwards. The number 3 was the fresh frame we put in 3 weeks ago, so this gets shifted inwards and 5 moved outwards. 1 was old 2, 2 was old 4, 3 fresh frame, 4 was old 5, and 5 was the fresh, fresh frame from three weeks ago. That's interesting. Hopefully I don't have to recount that because I don't know if I could describe it and break it down. But the bottom line is, by now all of the brood frames are moving steadily outwards and being replaced by fresh ones. So in the center of the brood, where the queen is doing her thing, if you're providing comb that's open, the queen is going to lay in those. They don't like open comb in the middle of the nest, so they will take advantage of those. He says the benefit of this approach is that about six weeks in, we have all ten frames as available space for the queen to lay, and we have relieved any honey-bound tendencies. The queen can lay unconstrained, and the math will show we don't need a second brood box. A secondary byproduct of this technique is that we are rotating old brood frames out of the nest for toxin reduction reasons. So Paul Smith, good one. I like that. I think that's a really cool method. And you know, one of the things that is talked about, but a lot of beekeepers don't give it a lot of credit, is if you could rotate old brood comb to the outside and then cull it and replace it with fresh comb, you're getting rid of the toxins. I like that you called that out. I thought that was a really good idea. So thanks. Appreciate that tidbit and glad to share it with the listeners. Hope everybody enjoyed that and got a little something from it. I'm going to switch to another listener email. This one's about the hmm, the topic I killed, <laughs> murdered. <laughs> Riding down to EAS, Bob Kloss was just teasing me unmercifully about all the things I had to say about a hive tool. <laughs> so one of the things in there was that I'd said I didn't like a frame grip, but inevitably somebody was going to write me in and tell me they love their frame grip. And I challenge you to do that. I'm curious to hear what you like about it. So Eric Brown, thanks for taking me up on that. So what Eric said is he loves his frame grip. And he thinks, and gave a good reason, it's because he uses gloves. And if you ever wear gloves, especially some of the gloves that have really padded heavy fingers, it's tough to grab a frame, so a frame grip makes a lot of sense. Now, we'll share at EAS, I saw a new revised frame grip. It had a locking mechanism, so you could clip on the frame and lock it, and then you don't have to hold pressure to hold it. It also had some things sticking out that looked like a little bit like a hive tool. 
I'm not really clear on it, and I still, I, I said maybe somebody will come up with a better mousetrap. I still don't believe that it's going to work for me, but um, he says, with the frame grip, I loosen the frame, grab it with the grip, and lift it straight up. No bumping the hive or other jiggling that sometimes occur trying to lift the frame manually. I do sometimes switch to the holding the frame with my hands for a more detailed inspection, but I could do most inspections using the frame grabber. How cool is that? So, you know, I, I think I was probably a little too harsh in retrospect. It's just, I've become so adept. Wait, let me not go off on a frame. <laughs> a hive tool. <laughs> Bob, I know you're listening. I won't go on a hive tool ramp, but I like my hive tool and, and to each his own, I suppose. So Eric wrote me back. That original message came in July 16th. Then he wrote me back on the 3rd. And he commented on my convoluted method of recognizing how old a bee was. 3, 6, 12, double it, that thing that I talked about in a previous episode. He learned a different way. And when I saw this email, I... I did the equivalent of la, 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 because I had learned it my way, and I was just about to go take the test, and I didn't want to confuse myself, but I'm going to share with you his method, and then we'll evaluate it together, because I'm going to read it for the first time. It says, the mnemonic 35853 is an easy way to remember how long it takes for a B to emerge. So it's 35853. He said my system was convoluted, so he agreed with me. He was taught this by a master beekeeper, and this is how it goes. Three, eggs emerge into larvae in three days. Five, larva gets capped in five more days. That's around day eight. Eight, queens emerge in eight more days around day 16. Five, Workers emerge in five more days around day 21. Three, drones emerge in three more days around day 24. Three, five, eight, five, three. And if you can see the numbers and recognize what they correspond to, I'm going to acquiesce to this and say, yeah, that's probably an easy way to remember it. So three eggs emerge into larvae. Five larvae gets capped in five more days. Eight queens emerge in eight more days around day 16. Yeah, that's kind of neat. I'll have to post that with the show notes in case anybody wants to see it because hearing it doesn't do the same thing as seeing what's written. So, Eric, cool. Thanks for sharing that with me. One more for this episode. On the Beekeeper's Corner Facebook page, there's a community, which darn if I wish I could figure out how to get that to show up more prominently, because people wrote, uh, write, a lot of interesting things there, and I would love that for to fall right into the stream, but I can't figure out how to make that happen. Anyway, Tony Mercer wrote in, here's another hive design for you to try, it's not mine, found in, in another group. It's cool. It's got frames with longer, hmm, how do I, the dimension is vertical, not horizontal, so everybody should be able to grasp that, but the key feature in this thing is it's a hexagon hive, 
and the hexagon hive has what looks to be five or six frames and they're separated into the different chambers as you go around the hexagon. So I, I didn't do a great job describing this, but in essence there's three separate chambers and they rotate around in a fan kind of way. And there's three dividers in the middle that serve as the hangers for the frames to sit on. And it's a neat configuration. Now I'll tell you a different story, not this design, but I had this idea of making a hexagon hive, smaller one, small footprint one, but I want to make it out of at least two inch or thicker material. And what I was going to do is cut all the pieces, if I could find some scrap wood, and glue them together, and I was almost there, so close. I watch on Facebook the marketplace in this thing called buy and sell where people sometimes give away things, sell things at a low cost. There was a guy on there who was giving away wood, two-inch ballasts, and I thought they would be perfect. I could put them through my table saw and chop them with my chop saw and use them to create wood to make this hive that I had envisioned. So I went to the town, picked it all up, brought it back, and then found out that, mm, no, it's all pressure treated. I had a notion of, ah, it's just pressure treated. But if you go do the math, do the research on that, that's a no-go. The stuff is just absolutely poison and toxic. You can't host bees in it, no matter what. So now I have all these two-inch ballasts that would have made this great hive. And um, yeah, they're sitting in a pile on the floor. <laughs> and I'm going to figure out what to do with them. And looking at this hive, this hive would have been a similar form factor, and that's what it reminded me of. Uh, you win some, you lose some. At least this stuff was free, and I'm sure, as with any excess lumber, I'll find some use for it. Time to close out the show, but before we go, I wanted to share some updates on EAS and some information about EAS coverage. I shared on Facebook the outcome of my master beekeeping testing. It was 50-50 if you did not hear. I passed the lab test with a 95, which was awesome. And it gives me three out of the four tests out of the way, but missed on the written. When I made a mistake on the essay questions by misinterpreting what they asked me. I'll circle back on this in the next episode in more detail, but suffice it to say... Mistakes on an essay question are catastrophic when it comes to losing points. And to achieve an 85, which is the passing grade, I simply have to face the fact that I'll get past this test once and for all next year. Such a dumb mistake, but in order to close out the show, gory details will wait for next time. I would be remiss if I didn't congratulate my study buddy Bob on his achievement of passing all four tests in one shot. With all sincerity, I'm happy for him, and two thoughts come to mind. He was ready, and he earned it. And in some small way, I'm happy to have partnered with him and hope that our work together contributed to success. I won't lay no claim, because as, as I said, he was prepared as anybody. Master Beekeeper Bob Kloss has a cool ring to it, and after next year, I have confidence that 
I'll be able to join that party too. I alluded earlier that the conference was really good this year. There's so many little things to bring back after the show. Stuff we saw, people we talked to, experiences with other beekeepers, lectures. I think it's going to take two or three episodes to cover all the basic things I wrote down to bring back to the show, so stay tuned. There's really many cool things to come. I wanted to take a moment to say happy birthday to my son Daniel. Today, the 30th, is his birthday. Oh yeah, and to my niece Carrie Ann, her birthday is the 30th. Oh, and to my other nephew, CJ, his birthday is the 30th. And last but not least, my twin brother Keith, his birthday is the 30th of August too. Uh, wait for it. <laughs> yeah, my twin, so happy birthday to me too! <laughs> <laughs> I confess my birthday is today also. The funny story about this is Dan and Carrie Ann were born on our birthday. My twin and I, in the same hospital, had our children on the same floor on the same day. So the fact that the situation is August 30th is a better day in the England household, as you could probably imagine. So two more things to get through in closing comments. First, a thank you for any donations that come our way. Don't take any advertising for the show. Pay everything out of my pocket. So I use the donations that we get to defray. Whatever comes through the PayPal link on our homepage is in support of producing the show. And I spend the money mostly on gadgets to cover and bring back. Case in point. Winter is coming, and I wanted to learn a bit more about a few pieces of equipment I've never used. So, with show money recently, I purchased a pollen trap to experiment with, talk about, a beetle blaster, small high beetle trap, try in the spring, and all the equipment you need to cross-wire a frame. Never had that uh, opportunity. Eyelets, the tool, the embedders, things like that. And I will certainly work with these things in time and bring back what I learned about them to the show. It's not really fair to take the money out of our household fund. The boss is not particularly fond of that, although she accepts it more often than not. Like every other person, we're paying bills, college educations, mortgages, and such. So every support dollar that we get is really appreciated. It allows me to expand what I can cover in upcoming topics. The last thing to say is to ask a prayer for some of our beekeeping friends out there. It seems like there's some bad news on a few fronts lately, and it's always sad to see others who have experienced tragedy and loss and are going through hard times. We're thinking of them and hope that you could send some loving thoughts to some of our friends locally who've had some bad times over these last few days. That being said, I'm excited for things to come, both in the yard, the bee yard that is, and for the show, and we'll be hard at work at both until next time we can get together. So for now, we'll say goodbye, and like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well. <laughs>